Hello and welcome to Built for Earth, where we're spotlighting experts and innovators taking on climate change. My name is Sam Beskin, and today our guest joining the show is Josh Silverman, founder and CEO of Windfall Bio. Windfall Bio is a nature-based agricultural technology company that harnesses methane-eating microbes to transform the harmful greenhouse gas into organic soil nutrients. Josh holds a PhD in biochemistry from Stanford and has founded and led numerous companies across biotechnology and sustainable agriculture over the past decade. Having focused on methane for over 15 years, he founded Windfall in late 2022 and quickly raised $9 million to commercialize their methane to organic fertilizer solution. Since launching the company, he has also earned the title The Methane Man. Welcome to the show, Josh. (laughs) Thanks, Sam. Thanks very much for having me. To begin, many studies suggest reducing methane emissions is the fastest and most effective path to reversing global warming. Can you expand on why this is the case? Yeah, so methane, unlike CO2, has a very limited lifetime in the atmosphere. So methane, because it has a high amount of energy in it, uh, is broken down by things like sunlight and oxygen and other factors in the atmosphere and also absorbed by the soils and organisms like we use at windfall that pull that methane out of the air. Now, while methane's in the air, it's significantly worse as a greenhouse gas than CO2 because it's absorbing more energy in the right wavelengths from the sun that causes more warming. But because methane is constantly being produced and constantly being destroyed, we have an opportunity to come in and reduce it uh, from the atmosphere much faster than CO2, which lasts for hundreds of years. Uh, Got it. Well, one of, one of the ways that methane is produced is as a byproduct of biological microbes that use anaerobic processes, meaning without oxygen, to digest organic matter. However, windfall shares that this process can also be reversed and that biology can indeed be great at consuming methane as well. And so would you be able to just speak a bit more to this and what biological processes naturally consume methane? Yeah, and there are quite a few. So like like you said, so methane is a natural byproduct. So anytime you have organic matter, if you put it in a pile or put it in an environment where there is not any oxygen present, the biological systems that break down that organic matter produce methane as a byproduct. And that's just when no oxygen is present, producing methane is the easiest thing for the organisms to do. And it allows them to eat their food, which is the cellulose or other degrading organic matter that's there. Now, when oxygen is present, methane can now be a food source for different organisms. So there's some organisms grow without oxygen. Those are the anaerobic ones. And then organisms that require oxygen, the aerobic ones. And chemically speaking, it's not very complicated. So I think most of us are familiar if you have methane, you know, natural gas coming out of your stove, you light a match, the energy, you can get the energy out of the methane very easily, right? So it it burns. Uh, and, And that's really the big difference between methane and CO2. Methane has energy. It's a source of energy, whereas CO2 is the waste product. And so when you are burning methane, you're adding oxygen and you're turning that methane into CO2 and you're extracting the energy from it. And that's exactly what the biological system is doing 
with a few extra steps in between. So the bi biological system is using that methane as food. It's absorbing the methane. It's combining it with oxygen inside the cell. And the organisms can then use the energy from that methane to drive the rest of their cellular processes. So just like yeast eats sugar, um, when we, we put it into our bread and it, it grows, it produces CO2, which allows the bread to rise. Um, but it's using, it's essentially burning that sugar, combi combining it with oxygen and producing CO2 as the waste product. So these are just, uh, the, these organisms that Windfall uses are just evolve to use methane as their food instead of sugar as their food. And these organisms are completely natural. They've actually been around on the planet longer than plants and photosynthesis and things of that nature. So these are organisms that use methane as their source of energy and food. And again, they're just using that to grow uh, in the way that other organisms do. Really interesting and helpful context, Josh. I want to clarify. So when these organisms use methane as their food source, do they still produce carbon dioxide as a byproduct of that? Some of it they do. So roughly about half. So again, the same way you think about yeast eating sugar, some of it gets used for energy, in which case they exhale CO2. Some of it gets used to actually build more biomass. Um, so the other way to think about it is, is people. When we eat our food, we eat our bread or meat, whatever it is that we're eating, some of that carbon gets stored at, in our body as mass and muscle and, and fat and all those other things. And some of it we exhale as CO2, the things that we burn for energy. So the organism is the same thing. They're using some of that carbon for cell mass and making more cells, making more MEMS, and some of it they use for energy, in which case they exhale it as CO2. Got it. And even when they are exhaling CO2, because CO2 has such a lower global warming potential than methane, it's still a net positive, I presume. Yeah, absolutely. So going back to the the impact and why does methane make such a big impact? So every ton of methane that goes out into the atmosphere has the same warming impact as 86 tons of CO2 over a 20-year period. So even if all the, the organisms did was just take that methane and turn it into CO2, you're, you're getting 86 tons of benefit in, in terms of climate uh, impact by doing that transformation. Truly incredible. And one thing I also read is that methane in the atmosphere has increased two and a half times since pre-industrial times compared to only a 0.5 times increase in carbon dioxide. And would you be able to just speak to what are the primary causes for this increase in methane in the atmosphere? So uh, that's a hard question because nobody knows the answer exactly. We have a lot of, of guesses to where it's coming from. So we can come back to methane has a short half-life in the atmosphere. So when we say that the concentration is increasing, we know that the production has to be increasing as well. So more methane is being pumped into the atmosphere, which is causing it to accumulate. And again, this has to happen on very short time scales, given how, how fast methane turns over. Uh, the half-life of methane in the atmosphere is only about 10 to 12 years. So it's turning over pretty, pretty quickly. So again, methane comes from lots of different sources. We said before, just decaying organic matter, Anywhere that you have it with no oxygen, it produces methane. Fossil sources, natural gas type sources, that's just 
organic matter that decayed millions of years ago in the deep soil. So it still all comes from the same place. But fossil natural gas is much, much older than stuff coming from wastewater treatment plant or a swamp or things of that nature. So we can actually tell the difference between those sources by the carbon isotope ratios because the amount of C12 versus C13 changes depending on how old the, the source of carbon is. So we can actually look at the isotope ratios of methane in the atmosphere and we can get an idea about where that net increase of methane is coming from. And what's really interesting is it's very clear that this is not coming from fossil sources. When the first tests were done 10 years ago or so, when we started to see that the methane in the atmosphere was going up, then the question was obviously, well, it's probably coming from leaks in natural gas sources and the increase in the amount of natural gas being used. But on, when we look at the isotope ratios, it's clearly not coming from fossil sources. It's coming from natural short-lived sources. So things like wetlands in equatorial regions and landfills and wastewater treatment and things of that nature. So from that isotope ratio, again, we know it's natural sources. Now, a source, again, if we think about a swamp, you have methane being produced from decaying organic matter in the deep soil. So when plants die, they sink down under the water, under the dirt, and down in the deep levels where there's no oxygen present, then microbes degrade it and produce methane. The MEMS that we use, these are organisms that live in the top layer of soil. Again, they need the oxygen from the atmosphere, as well as taking the methane from these decaying organic matter below. And so they live in that top layer of soil and they eat the methane before it ever gets into the air. So when we see that methane from natural sources is increasing in the atmosphere, that means it's a combination of two things. It may be increasing methane being produced from decaying matter in the deep soil, or it may be a decrease in the consumption of the MEMS in sitting in the top layer. And it's probably some combination of both of those. But certainly there are indications that as the world's temperature is increasing, the rate of methane production, those organisms that produce methane are speeding up because as with most things, when you warm up an organism, they grow faster, they metabolize faster. And then we've also seen reports that the natural amount of MEMS in that top layer of soil that should be eating it, those have actually reduced significantly over the last 10 to 20 years as well. So we have both an increase in production and a decrease in consumption that is leading to this increase in the atmosphere. What an illuminating answer. And I think that's something that I didn't even recognize and many people won't recognize is that this increase in methane is probably not coming from fossil sources. And while it's still really important to reduce natural gas leakage and take into account different mechanisms for reducing the amount of methane that might be coming from fossil sources, it's primarily a natural problem that there's a decrease in the amount of consumption and an increase in the amount of natural release of methane. And that might be a perfect segue to learn a little bit more about what Windfall is doing. So Windfall is developing methane-eating microbes for farmers as the first phase of its solution to this problem. And can you share um, a little bit more about where those microbes are coming from that you guys are sourcing and why you're targeting farmers as your first pilot customers? 
Yeah, so one, we see farmers as a, a great opportunity. They sit right in the center of this. So when we look at sources of methane into the atmosphere, again, decaying organic matter and plants are a major source of this. Cows and other, and rice agriculture, these are all huge sources of methane into the atmosphere, and it's all tied to the production of our food system. In fact, something like 25% of the methane that's going into the atmosphere today can be traced directly to the production of human food and, and agriculture. And that being said, one of the largest sinks of methane out of the atmosphere is again, the soil, the land, the dirt, and that is immediately being, you know, when we talk about farmers, you know, one of their major roles is shepherding and managing the land. And 100% of arable land is sitting under the management of farmers. And so farmers have both the production and the consumption within their purview of things to manage. So the organisms that we're using, the MEMS, their natural role in the environment is to eat the methane before it ever gets into the atmosphere, as well as to pull the methane out of the atmosphere. But they're using the energy from that methane to actually put nutrients into the soil. And the MEMS role in all of these natural ecosystems that they occur in, they're literally the bottom of the food chain. They're taking methane, they're turning it into food that other organisms can use. And they're doing that both in terms of putting carbon into the soils but also putting nitrogen into the soils. And they're able to use that energy from the methane to pull nitrogen out of the air and turn that into fertilizer, right? And compounds that plants like. And one of the things that every single farmer in the world needs is more fertilizer. So the ability for us to take this sort of natural process, amplify it and turn it into something that a farmer can actually use on site and produce products that the farmer needs themselves while also being very good for the climate by reducing the amount of methane that's going out, we think it's a great way to essentially close that loop. Because you know, we said, you know, there's a lot of things that farmers are good at. One of the things that farmers are really good at is being efficient, right? And using their own waste streams and turning it into valuable products. And every farmer that we talk to wants to reduce waste as much as possible, be as efficient as possible, and by therefore, you know, being as profitable as possible. And today, most of them regard methane as a waste source simply because they don't have the tools to capture it. And so you know, methane on site, if it's dilute and it just goes up into the air, it's too hard for them to deal with and capture and doesn't turn into something that's directly valuable. But going back to the, the fossil methane, the natural gas, we know methane has value, right? Because it's energy, it has energy. If we have enough methane in one place, you can sell that in the open market today and people can burn it for electricity, they can burn it for heat. Most of us, many people at least, have uh, pipelines of methane bringing gas into their home. You use it every day for cooking, for all these things. So we know methane has value if you can actually use it. So we're essentially using the, the natural biological processes to put these tools into the hands of farmers so they can actually capture that methane they have around them and turn it into things that are directly impacting the operations and utility of their farm. Really neat, Josh. And I'd love to just get a little more clarity into what this looks like in practice and the scale at which you anticipate it happening. So are you actually bringing these methane-eating microbes or MEMS to a farmer's site yourselves? And then once a farmer has these MEMS in their hands, and I'd love to get a number, is it a billion MEMS or what's the order of magnitude there? And then once they have these MEMS, how do they procure that fertilizer? What what does this look like in practice? Yeah, so it can take a lot of different forms. And again, because methane comes from so many different sources, 
how the farmers can access the methane depends a lot on the, again, is this coming from, you know, a pile of manure from a, a cow? Is it coming from a flooded rice field? Is it just coming from a compost pile that hasn't been turned in a couple of weeks? So the methane can come from a lot of different sources and how the farmer accesses that will depend on what the source of the methane is. But at the end of the day, what we're providing them, I think the best analogy I can use is like when you buy yeast at a store, you can use that to bake a loaf of bread, you can bake some rolls, you can make a pizza dough, you can make a vat of wine. So the yeast is always eating sugar and it's producing CO2 and alcohol. Like that's normally what yeast do. Now, how you set it up in your kitchen or your garage or however you're doing it, what exactly what's the source of sugar you're feeding it? What's the area that you're growing it in and what are you trying to get out of it all depends on your particular application. So in that same way, we provide the farmer the MEMS that they can then use to capture their methane and turn it into something useful. But these cells normally grow in dirt, right? So they're they're able to grow in very lean environments using whatever methane is available to them. And so in many cases, a farmer might be able to just grow it in their own, if they're already composting and they have a compost pile that they're going to use for fertilizer to grow their own crops already, they can put the MEMS into that compost pile. The MEMS pull the methane out of the air. Again, maybe that's coming from a barn with a bunch of cows in it. And they eat that methane and put the nitrogen and fertilizer compounds into the compost. And the farmer just spreads the compost like they would before, but now they need less synthetic fertilizer to supplement because there's more nitrogen in that compost than was there previously. Lots of different ways that they can do that in terms of how many. Yeah, we are talking billions, multiple billions, and these are microscopic organisms. So a billion organisms can fit like in, in the palm of your hand pretty easily. And the interesting part is, you know, they will continue to grow. Like as they're eating, you don't need very many to start with because if you give them food, they will grow, they will reproduce, and they will basically expand the amount of food available to them. Again, the same way if you're making a loaf of bread, you, you start with a small amount of yeast and you can you know, make a lot of bread with a very tiny amount of yeast. Really helpful answer, and and thanks for sharing that context. I want to ask, has Windfall worked with any pilot farmers or any pilot farms, and how has the response been from farmers when using your methane to organic fertilizer solution? Yeah, we're still in early days, so we are certainly getting several pilots set up. There's none that I can talk about publicly just yet, but we're seeing a lot of interest and excitement. I think, again, the story for farmers of being able to be more efficient, more self-sufficient, to be able to better use this currently unavailable resource that is sitting there on the farm right now, um, that has generated a lot of excitement. And also say it's not just farmers. Again, methane comes from lots of different sources and you know landfills and wastewater treatment and oil and gas facilities and all of these places. Again, if methane's concentrated enough, you can burn it for energy today and it has value. Once it falls below that level where you can light a match, now people start to have some difficulty in how we can capture it. So we can help them be able to capture those resources directly. Got it. And so while you're primarily tar- targeting farmers as your first market, you just talked about this a little bit, but do you see other applications where you see windfall helping demethanize the future? 
Yeah, absolutely. And again, methane comes from so many different sources. I think there's a measurable percent of methane, you know, single digit percent methane going into the atmosphere today comes from termite mounds, for example, just to give you an idea of you know, how broad this is. And because termites, they need to digest a lot of cellulose. And so they gather that in and they actually put it down in piles in the deep parts of their mounds and it turns into degrading organic matter and ends up putting a, a whole lot of methane into the atmosphere. Um, the melting Arctic permafrost, I mean, you've probably seen as glaciers are moving past and they're, we're exposing areas of the soil that have not been in contact with or not been exposed to the atmosphere in a long period of time, all of those are now off-gassing lots of methane into the atmosphere. and. So we're seeing a lot of positive feedback loops, which is not a good thing. It sounds you know, positive sounds like a good thing, but in this case, it's bad. So as climate warms up, it's actually increasing the amount of methane going into the atmosphere, which then increases the warming. And again, you get this increasing loop, which can cause pretty dramatic shifts in warming in very short periods of time. And coming back to this idea, you know, methane is a great opportunity for reducing temperature in the short term because of its short half-life. But it goes the other way as well, because it changes so quickly, it can actually cause a lot of warming in very short periods of time as well. So we are excited to be able to put this solution in place and begin because it is so flexible and able to capture methane from many different sources, there's, we think, gonna be significant benefits across many different industries. Sweet. Well, that's amazing, Josh. And and coming back to your point about termites, I get that exterminators need to remarket themselves as global warming reducers. Is that right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that, that would certainly be helpful. Yep. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, looking at your business operations a little bit, when you guys look big picture, how over the course of the next decade or however long windfall bio will take to reach scale, how much methane is windfall looking to take out of the atmosphere? Is that a quantifiable measure or do you guys have a target or is that not something that you can really say concretely? That's a good question. No, so we don't have a a specific target. I mean, certainly we think we have the opportunity to take well over a gigaton of CO2 equivalents out of the atmosphere within the next 10 years. So we think we can have very large impacts in short amount of time because we're we're dealing with methane relative to CO2. It's hard to fully quantify, again, because methane comes from so many different sources, it's gonna depend quite a bit on the, the types of incentives that come in place to allow this to go towards non-economic approaches. So part of our main issue is, especially when we look at climate change in general, the biggest question is always who pays? Who is really going to put the, the time, effort, and economic incentive behind really pulling it, like every molecule of methane out of the atmosphere? That's a hard question. So this is why we focused on agriculture and farmers, and again, why methane is such a much better target than CO2 in the short term at least, is because methane has value, methane has energy, right? Methane, if you can capture it and turn it into something useful, that actually pays back the farmer directly for capturing it. You don't need to rely on a government or a taxpayer or a subsidy to be able to drive this. 
And so that idea of being able to put a price on the methane, create a value, create an, in, an inherent incentive for its capture, we think that can allow this process to scale much, much more rapidly than other processes that are requiring on governments to invest billions and billions of dollars to be able to drive these incentives. Yeah, that's such a cool business model and obviously taking a lot of foresight and planning on your behalf to develop a solution where there is market pull, where you're not relying on government incentives. And and hopefully with this administration and moving forward that there will continue to be government incentives for climate technologies that can reduce greenhouse gases. But being able to create an entity that can stand on its own two feet and scale over the next 10 years is really exciting. So great work on that front. Now, I also imagine that there will be a number of challenges. And so what do you see as the biggest challenge facing windfall bio and how do you plan to overcome it? Yeah, I'd say our our biggest challenge is scaling in that same way. So we definitely see a lot of demand for our technologies across many different industries. And so making sure we can actually supply the market demand that we're creating, I think is going to be the important one. And we are hearing from many brands, you know, consumer brands, they all want to decarbonize their supply chain. They want to provide better, more sustainable products to consumers without having to increase cost. And that all makes a lot of sense. But if you can only decarbonize 1% of their supply chain, it's not very exciting to them. And, and it can be counterproductive in some cases. So as we convince people and show that it works, we need to be able to provide them the infrastructure to be able to decarbonize 100% of their supply chain as quickly as they can. And so us being able to grow and provide the raw materials to allow all of these different industries to decarbonize, we think that's probably going to be our main challenge. How do we scale up our production to match demand in a way that makes sense? Where, so where does this production of the MEMS come from? Is it happening within a lab? Is it happening with a supply chain partner elsewhere? Are you guys outsourcing that? Or is that something you guys are doing yourselves? Yeah, our expectation is that we will be outsourcing that. And again, use this example a lot, but think about yeast in your grocery store, right? You have a central production facility. You grow the yeast in a large vat. You dry it down, and then you as the consumer of the yeast, you buy a single small packet in your grocery store. but So you need a centralized production that grows all of that yeast to begin with. And we can use partners, we can do that ourselves, but that's where we need to scale that up to make sure we have enough of that raw material that we can then supply all of these different industries to allow them to capture their own sources of methane. Really exciting stuff, Josh. And I want to transition a little bit more to your personal journey. You have been a serial entrepreneur throughout your career, now founder and CEO of Windfall Bio. Do you have any fun stories? And if, if you have a main learning or two to take away from that time, that would be phenomenal. Hmm, fun stories. Yeah, so I started off my career in the therapeutic space did a lot of drug developments, bringing therapeutics through FDA and EMEA approvals. And I think fun is one way to describe it. It's certainly interesting, but getting therapeutics and getting drugs approved is a very long and expensive process. And so part of the reason I've pivoted into the industrial space is I wanted to be able to bring products into the marketplace that would impact consumers' lives in my lifetime. I want to 
actually have real impacts in a time that we can see it compared to drug development that can take literally decades before, even if the drug works well, going through clinical trials and the hundreds of millions of dollars of funding necessary to get it going is, is just very, very frustrating. So from the industrial biotech side of things, one of the things that I think is actually really interesting and that I've been pushing in my career is the use of biotechnology as a technology that can actually scale and have worldwide impact. And this is something that I think a lot of people have missed. Like we think about chemical engineering and petroleum and oil and gas and people building billion dollar facilities with massive oil refineries and things like that. And we think, okay, for scale, that's the sort of technology we need to go after. And especially when we think about climate and the technologies that can actually impact climate, when you start talking about building massive billion dollar facilities and stainless steel, and it very quickly gets to numbers that don't make any sense, that these are not dollars that are going to be invested in any type of meaningful time frame. But when we think, what is the technology that's been validated to be able to impact climate, right? And, and there is really only one, and that's biology, right? And we, all of us are familiar with trees and how, the impact that trees and photosynthesis and things like that have on climate. And even we as humans, it's our impact on the climate itself that's caused it to become start warming, right? And it's our biology at the core. So biology really works very, very well at scaling up to extremely large scales, which is something that I think most people just don't realize. Like we think, when we think large scale, we think an oil refinery, right? And we think massive turbines and everything running at 800 degrees Celsius and intensifying with pressure and temperature. But in reality, Biology is the best scaling technology we have and really the best opportunity we have to really impact things at very broad levels. And part of that is because nobody talks about intensifying a tree, right? You're never gonna run a tree at 800 degrees Celsius, right? Unless I guess you wanna burn it. But it's not going to pull CO2 out of the atmosphere at, at those levels. The reason trees are so effective is a tree grows, it does what it needs to do, and its output is producing more trees. And so it scales horizontally instead of vertically and intensively. And nobody talks about what's the capex of a tree, like how much does it cost you to build a tree? Because you plant it, it grows, and it takes care of itself. And the biological systems are really, really well suited to these planet scale solutions because they are so inherently low cost and self-replicating. And so, I don't know, this is a long-winded way of, you know, what's the, the cool story, but I think it's coming to that realization that biology really is our best tool available for global-level engineering. And while most people in Silicon Valley like to think about computer programs and hardware and silicon chips and things of that nature, biology really has a, a role to play and to, to sit at the table alongside these other technologies in terms of moving our species forward. So... I love that insight, Josh, and it just makes you realize that our world it was in planetary equilibrium long before we were even here or long before there was industrial processes or oil refineries. And so coming to these nature-based solutions, these biological solutions, that might be the best way to return to this planetary equilibrium where we're not increasing 
greenhouse gases in the atmosphere by magnitudes. And I love what you said about trees, that we don't have to scale everything vertically and intensify every process. Scaling horizontally is probably a much more beautiful solution, much more economic and ecologically friendly process to address this problem as well. And so a couple more questions here, Josh. You might have covered it a tiny bit in your last answer, but one of the main audiences of this podcast are young, motivated people who want to get involved in slowing down global warming. So if you're somebody in that position who's about to enter the workforce with these motivations, where would you begin? So yeah, in, in terms of advice to new graduates, I mean, clearly climate, I think, is a major area for growth. And we're going to see a lot more investment and effort there and because we're already seeing the negative impacts just with thousand year weather events every other year at this point. So clearly there's a lot of issues that are coming up. In terms of the opportunities, I think you know, we need lots of creative solutions at the table from financial solutions to software solutions to again hard tech. I do think at the end of the day, my personal opinion is we need more of the physical technology and there's only so far we're going to be able to get with financial instruments or softwares solutions or marketplaces or things of that nature those are technically easier i mean things that you can type into a computer and everybody loves it i can create a computer program and match all these things and create a lot of value as we've seen in a bunch of silicon valley companies and that's great we need those things but at the end of the day, climate is still a physical problem, right? We need molecules of carbon to come out of the atmosphere, you know, full stop. And there's only so much that can be done in terms of mixing and matching things on a computer screen. We do need more people out there rolling up their sleeves, getting their hands dirty, finding physically useful ways to actually make modifications to our day-to-day -day environment. And I'm a little bit biased, but I'll say, you know, chemistry, I think, is really important. And thermodynamics is a critical part of where the problem has come from in the first place. So a, needing a good understanding of that in order to reverse it, I think, is, is really important. And we also need, I would say, a, an all-hands-on-deck scenario as well. I will say there has been a huge emphasis on carbon dioxide-related solutions over the last 20 or 30 years. And even today, even though roughly half of the warming happening in the atmosphere right now is from methane versus CO2, methane's only getting about 2% of the investment in time and effort in technology solutions relative to CO2. And even today, talking to some of the most well-educated, well-informed investors and stakeholders, I still get the point of, well, methane's interesting, but we only have a mandate to pull carbon out of the atmosphere. And people who just completely neglect that carbon is more than carbon dioxide. Methane is carbon as well and deserves that, but yet it's being ignored. And then beyond methane, there's other climate gases, nitrous oxide, for example. Very few people are talking about that. And yet, you know, if CO2 is one, one ton equivalent, methane is 86 tons equivalent, nitrous oxide is over 300 tons equivalent. So nitrous oxide has an even bigger impact on a molecule by molecule basis relative to either methane or CO2, and yet even less is being done in that regard. And, and there's plenty of other things we can talk about as well in terms of environmental things. So I think the opportunities are there, the need is definitely there, and encourage people to think creatively about how they can approach those topics. I loved your point, Josh, about how we need to bring 
more hard tech solutions to the table. And that's what inspired me to start this podcast. This is a podcast that focuses on entrepreneurs and innovators and experts focusing on hard tech solutions because ultimately we need to build atoms, not bits, to reduce global warming. And like you said, it's challenging. The capital expenditure might be a bit higher. It might be a little bit less investable by the Silicon Valley standards. But that's my hope is we're able to bring some of these companies to the forefront of the discussion and recognize the importance as we head into the future. Last question for you here, Josh. What is a fun fact not about Dr. Silverman, CEO of Windfall Bio, but about Josh, the person? Oh, I mean, there's probably way more than I want to disclose on a, on a podcast, but, uh, you know, personally, I very much enjoy, I'm not a farmer per se, but I definitely have been making more of a hobby over the last 10 years of getting into farming-like practices. So I have chickens and ducks and bees. Uh, so I, I, yeah, I have 10 hives. We make honey. I, I'm getting about a dozen eggs a day from my chicken and duck operations. Oh, and I also have 60 blackberry bushes, and so we just we harvested 10 pounds of blackberries over the 4th of July weekend and made pies for all my neighbors. So, yeah, again, I don't want to overstate because this is not a real farm operation by any stretch of the imagination, but it at least lets us have some contact and connection to the land, to the real operations. Coming back to this idea, like there's only so much you can do virtually, right? And only so much you can learn by looking online and reading about things, which is important, absolutely. But at the end of the day, you still need to be able to physically go in and make changes. So things like having your own chickens, I would encourage everybody <laughs> to, to be doing that. It reduces food waste, increases self-sustainability, and really helps drive a circular economy in your own house, <laughs> I think is a great experience for everyone. Well, that concludes today's episode. I first want to say thank you to you, Josh, not only founder and CEO of Windfall Bio, but someone who's rolling up their sleeves to clean up the chicken poop, pick their blackberries, and create that circularity within their own backyard. Windfall Bio has the potential to transform the world through methane-eating microbes. If you like this episode of Built for Earth, please subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social media at Built Number for Earth to stay up to date on startups with world-changing potential like Windfall. Until next time, this is Josh Silverman and Sam Beskin signing off. Thank you.